Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Hey, I want to thank everyone who helped put on our Bag Hunger Food Drive for the Covington Food Bank that we wrapped up today after church. We collected a lot of food. I'll give you the numbers maybe on the next podcast. And also thanks to everyone who helped us with the West 30s block party on Saturday, serving barbecue and connecting with the community. It was a great time. Today's message is entitled Waking Up to the Light of Christ, and we did a song during the service, but the recording didn't come out well, so I'm just putting the demo version that I recorded myself in my own studio a week ago called Dreaming and Waking. And the title of this message is Waking Up to the Light of Christ. So you'll hear the song, and then we'll get into the message, because the message kind of ties into some of the lyrics of the song. So here we go, North Shore Vineyard. Thanks for listening.
Today is Palm Sunday, and churches around the world are commemorating, celebrating the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And this is a, an interesting story because Jesus comes in town riding on the back of a young, a young donkey. It must have actually looked a, a bit comical. And one thing that we don't realize is that Jesus, in riding into Jerusalem, making this triumphal entry, he is actually fitting a messianic pattern. It was part of the cultural expectation of what the Messiah was going to do. After all, there had been another Messiah figure about 130 years before, a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. Uh, his his, his uh, wrestling name was Judah the Hammer. And... He had led the revolt against the Seleucid Empire, which was a breakaway from the Greek Empire, and successfully defeated the Seleucid kings and made his own triumphal entry into Jerusalem and was held as the Messiah. He's the one who kicked butt, brought freedom, and set up the Maccabean dynasty, which would last about 100 years. It's what is uh, celebrated by the Jewish people as Hanukkah. Now, what's the first thing that Judas Maccabeus does after he makes his triumphal entry with pomp and circumstances, riding on a war horse? What's he do? He goes to the temple, and he cleanses it of idols. The Greeks had set up idols to their gods in the temple and had defiled it. And so the first thing that he does was he takes out all the idols, he rededicates the temple. Now, you fast forward about 130 years, we see Jesus riding into town. And this Jesus is welcomed on Palm Sunday, not as merely a rabbi or a teacher or even a prophet. He's welcomed by the masses as the Messiah. He's the one who's coming into town, and he's going to set things right. And he follows the messianic pattern, except he doesn't come in riding on a war horse. He doesn't come into town with legions of soldiers with pomp and circumstances. He comes in riding on the back of a donkey, a young donkey at that. But people welcome him. They begin laying down palm branches, taking off their cloaks and laying them before Jesus, which is what you would do to welcome a dignitary. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. 
And what's the first thing Jesus goes and does once he comes into town? He goes to the temple and he cleanses it. But he's not cleansing it from outside idols. He's actually cleansing the religion itself, which had become so... uh, commercialized, selling people ways in and had had actually become a means of keeping people away from God. He kicks out the money changers. And so everything starts off pretty good on Palm Sunday, but we know it's only about five days later before things take a drastic turn in the other direction. We call it Good Friday, and we'll celebrate that this Friday, but... There was nothing good about it to those who witnessed it that first time. It was the most horrible thing that the followers of Jesus could ever experience, and even Jesus himself. But but between the triumphal entry and Good Friday, we have one of the most intimate pictures of Jesus, which I actually read during worship this morning, so I'm not going to go back and read it again. I just want to tell a bit of the story. I want us to look at the disciples and at Jesus, because what we see when we look at it from a bit of a bird's eye view, we see that Holy Week, particularly in the life of the disciples, is a movement from sleep to waking, from blindness to sight. And oftentimes, as we're going to find out, waking up, you know, it's nice when you can gently wake up to the sun, you know, uh, peering through your window and you just kind of just come, come to, to waking up just in a slow and gentle way. But what we're going to see is oftentimes when it comes to our own lives in a spiritual sense, that waking up comes uh, through suffering, through trials. So Jesus comes into town And it's Passover week, and this is very important because out of all the festivals that Jesus could have come to Jerusalem, this was an interesting one because it gathers up the symbolically what Jesus is doing. Jesus will end up being the Passover lamb who takes away the sins of the whole world, the, the blood on the doorpost of the universe, so to speak. And Jesus, as he has been doing throughout the Gospels, is reenacting the stories of Israel as the one true Israelite who was faithful to the covenant. You know, when we celebrate communion, Jesus talks about a new covenant. Well, the only one who can introduce a new covenant is one who's actually fulfilled the old covenant. Jesus, as God and man, fulfills the old covenant, and he can start a new one based on his goodness, which we see. So Jesus is gathering up even the symbolism of Passover in himself. What he is going to do is going to mean an exodus for all of creation into God's new creation. God is up to something. And we see this come into focus on the the night that Jesus will be betrayed. He celebrates the Passover with his own disciples. And as part of that meal, he introduces the Eucharist. Now we take this meal pretty much every week at at North Shore Vineyard. Sometimes we skip a week or so. But this is this is a meal that's talking about a broken body and shed blood. It's a it's a very violent thing that we're we're taking in. (laughs) And when we look at that first Eucharist that Jesus introduced, the disciples just don't get it. 
they think, oh, this is another one of those parable things. You know, Jesus passing around bread and wine. This is my body and my blood. And they, you know, okay, all right, Jesus. But they don't get it. And one reason we can tell that they don't get it, because right after they take of the first communion, this holy meal that's actually pointing to something that will happen the very next day, from Jesus' perspective, it's got to be a pretty emotional experience. Have you ever been going through something and everybody around you has no clue what you're going through and they're just going on about life like everything's just fine and you're just dying on the inside? I can, I can just, I, I suspect that that's how Jesus was feeling in that moment. He knows what's coming. He's been telling these disciples what's coming. He's been telling them a long time, I got to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer and die. Again, they probably just thought, oh, he, that's another parable. They don't get it. And the one reason we can tell that they don't get it is because right after they take communion, they start arguing about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? And I, I can bet that it, that that whole conversation was rather comical, you know. Uh, Peter's like, how many of y'all walked on water? Psh, I'm the greatest, you know. And, and, and John's like, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved or whatever. But they're arguing about it, and I could just see Jesus sitting there shaking his head, just listening to them banter back and forth. And then finally Jesus says, look, you want to know who's the greatest in the kingdom of God? The one who serves. See, the way of the world, it's always power over. It's, it's wealth and reputation and power and using people as a, as a means to your own ends and climbing up the ladder of success however you can get it. Jesus said, not so in my kingdom. The very greatest among you is actually the servant of all. And Jesus said, I mean, just look at me. Jesus says, have I not served you guys? It's interesting in the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John doesn't even contain the communion meal, but it shows us something else that the other Gospels don't, that after dinner, Jesus takes his outer garment off and he takes a towel and a basin and he goes around and he washes the feet of the disciples, a disgusting job that nobody wanted to do in that culture when everybody wears sandals and there's a bunch of animals in the street. You get the point. Jesus washes their feet, and when he gets done, he, he says, what I've done for you, you ought to do for one another. Jesus is showing us something here. The way the kingdom of God comes, it doesn't come through coercion. It doesn't come through intimidation. It doesn't come through grasping for power. It comes through downward mobility, as Henry Nouwen once said. It comes by taking the low road. That's what we see in everything that Jesus did. But the disciples don't get it. They don't have a clue. And Jesus looks at the disciples. He says, look, you guys, <laughs> Satan wants to sift you like wheat tonight. But he looks at Peter in particular. And he says, Peter, I'm praying for you that when this sifting has, has concluded, <laughs> you will actually have something to strengthen your brothers with. Now, Peter is the most clueless of all of them, and he says, Psh, not me, not me, Lord. I'm prepared to, to be locked up in prison. I'll even die for you, Jesus. These other losers, they're probably going to fail you. I think the same thing about them, but not me. And Jesus says, Peter, I got to let you in on something. You are not as courageous as you think you are. You're not as good as you think you are. In fact, you're going to deny that you know me three times 
before the sun even fully comes up tomorrow. How you like to get that word from Jesus? <laughs> and so the story goes that Jesus leaves the Passover meal, and he goes to the Mount of Olives where Jesus, it says, would commonly go to pray. He, that was his place where he connected with God in nature. And he tells the, the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, who are, are, are kind of the inner circle of his 12 disciples, he says, I want you to be on guard, stay awake, be on guard against temptation. While I go and pray. And Jesus goes and prays. And we can see the humanity of Jesus suffering great emotional travail as he prays to the Father. Father, is there another way we can do this thing that that doesn't require a cross, that doesn't require me dying? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. See, we even see in the final hours before Jesus is crucified, he is still not coming from a place of willfulness, a place of pushing things forward. It is always a place of surrender. Even when Jesus dies on the cross, he is laying his life down. He could have opted out at any time, but he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And it says he began to sweat like drops of blood. He gets up from prayer and he comes back to find the disciples sleeping. And he wakes them up. He's like, why are you guys sleeping? I told you not to sleep. And what do they wake up to? They wake up to the angry mob coming with swords and clubs led by Judas Iscariot, the one who betrays Jesus. And they haul Jesus away. I find it interesting. There are two two passages in the New Testament that talk about these same three disciples sl- sleeping <laughs> at a key moment. The other one was that we, what we covered a couple months ago, the, the transfiguration. Jesus takes these three disciples up to the top of the mountain and they're asleep and they wake up to see Jesus glowing, radiant with white lights and, and talking to Moses and Elijah and the cloud of God's glory descends upon the mountaintop and they hear the voice of God saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And I think that this is a key detail that both the, uh, that the author of, of Luke has left in in two spots because it is really not just their physical condition. They have been around Jesus for three years. They have witnessed the Sermon on the Mount. They've witnessed Jesus healing lepers, blind people, even raising the dead. But they still don't get it. They still don't get it. I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus says over and over, like, oh, you have little faith. You just don't, there's, there's actually one passage where we see Jesus is asleep and the disciples are awake and they're freaking out in the boat because the storm's rolling up and they're like, we're going to die. And they're like, wake Jesus up. And Jesus wakes up. He goes, oh, you have little faith. You don't get this. You still don't see. You still don't see. You're still asleep. One of my favorite insights, I, I've shared this on many occasions from Richard Rohr is that transformation only comes in our life through either great love or great suffering. And I can bet you, if you reflect over your life a little bit, you will know that to be true. When I think of the 
the times in my life where God has changed me the most, it has usually come during a time of great crisis, suffering, trial, expectations, you know, we, we construct a way, we, we get into a place in life where we've got reality exactly as we want it, and we're going along, everything's great. And then sometimes when wind comes out of nowhere and knocks you sideways, and you don't even know where you are, something that was outside of what you expected happens. A loved one dies, you get laid off from your job, you get betrayed, and, and now you're in a, in, a, in a place where you don't even know where you are. And a lot of times we think in those moments like, God hates us. I've done something wrong. I've offended the divine. But what I've come to see is if we can look at even the trials and suffering in a different way, we can look at these as ways of transforming us if we will keep moving towards Christ. One of my favorite lines from Leonard Cohen is, there is a crack in everything, and that's how the light gets in. What we see happening to Peter the night that Jesus is betrayed, we see some cracks forming in his expectations, some cracks forming in his ego, some cracks forming in the way that he viewed himself and Jesus and the world around him. And sure enough, as Jesus told Peter... He denies that he knows Jesus three times, and on that third time he hears the rooster crow, and he begins to see the first rays of sunshine coming up as the sun is beginning to rise. This is one of the darkest moments in Peter's life, and yet it is also the moment where Peter is starting to see for the first time. Now what Peter starts to see at the beginning is not what he wants to see. And this is what happens oftentimes when we get into to trouble and, and suffering and something we didn't see coming is that one of the first things it reveals is we're not as courageous or as good or as trustworthy as we had led ourselves to believe. It's easy to believe you're good and courageous if you never have to be tested on that. <laughs> but when the fire comes, oftentimes... It reveals that we're not as good as we had led ourselves to believe. We don't have it as together as we had led ourselves to believe, or even in Peter's case, as, as good as he had led other people to believe about him. The cracks are forming. You know, one of the interesting things that I find in the, in the resurrection narratives, which we will be looking at next week, is that I just thought of this as, as such a strange thing for years when I would read these passages. Have you ever read so many of the stories about the resurrected Christ is that when somebody encounters Jesus, they don't recognize him. You know, Mary Magdalene at the tomb, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, like people encounter Christ, but they don't recognize him as Christ. And I think part of the problem with this, part of the reason is that you can only actually see something you've experienced, this is just basic childhood development. I mean, we, when you're growing up, you're shoving things into your mouth and, you know, you're, you're trying to create a database of everything that you've experienced. And that's how you navigate the world. We can only see what we've experienced and we can only see what we expect to see. Context is a big deal. Like, chances are if a, a, you see a polar bear running down downtown Covington, you wouldn't see a polar bear. 
your mind would make that into something else because you are not expecting to see a polar bear in downtown Covington. I'll, I'll use an example from my own life. When we first moved into our house that we're living in right now in Abita Springs, we'd been there for a few weeks and I'm sitting out, out on the back porch one day and I hear a rustling up in the trees and I looked up and I saw what I swear at the time looked like a bobcat. I mean, I'm just like, it's a bobcat. I'm like, Dina, Dina, come out here. There's a bobcat up in the tree. And I sat, I stood looking up at this tree, the same spot, because it just kind of disappeared into the foliage. I stood there for like an hour. I got animal control on the phone. We've got a bobcat over here. And they're like, or maybe a swamp panther or something, you know? <laughs> Rougarou. And... And I, I, I was looking up at it, and, and I never saw it appear again. But after I lived in Abita Springs for a, a few more months and got acquainted with the local animal creatures that f- frequently b- visit my backyard, namely raccoons, I, I realized something when I saw raccoons run up trees. I'm like, I think what I was actually seeing was a raccoon. One of the big giveaways was that it wasn't a bobcat, is that it had a tail, and bobcats don't have tails. And the tail looked a lot like a raccoon tail. (laughs) But after living in Kenner for seven years and not living in Abita Springs, my mind, the first thing that it jumped on was that was a cat. You saw a bobcat running up that tree. I think people that run into Jesus after he's resurrected, they don't see him. They don't see the risen Christ because they've not lived in a world where anybody comes back from the dead. (laughs) They're not living in a world where that has ever been a reality. That'd be like seeing a polar bear in downtown Covington. It would take you a while before you could get it. But the interesting thing is how Jesus reveals himself. The risen Christ reveals himself. It is, it is through conversation, through relationship, through connection, whether it's the disciples on the road to Emmaus or Mary Magdalene at the tomb. And this is where we see How great love. As Richard Rohr said, we don't experience transformation except through great suffering or great love. Usually it's a combination of both, but oftentimes it's great suffering before it's great love. The great suffering is what cracks you open so the light can get in. And then it is experiencing the love of Christ which transforms us. That's what happens with Peter. You know, Peter's spiritual journey up to this point would be characterized by the world by the word willfulness and i'd say that's probably most people start to christianity i mean assuming that you're taking christianity seriously you know i mean there's some people eh, this is grown up christians this is always kind of christian they've never really put much thought or effort into it but i can say for myself my first 10 or 12 years of being a christian was characterized by the word willfulness I was trying to be a good person. I was trying to do everything in my own strengths and abilities. And I think that's part of the journey. I think you need to experience the power or lack of of your own will. You need to confront that power in yourself or lack of. But Peter bumps into something that evening that willpower ain't enough for him. His own willpower ain't going to get the job done. He didn't have what it takes. His strength failed in the moment where Jesus needed him the most. 
And Peter, after he denies Jesus, he walks away dejected, just feeling like a complete failure. But the story we see at the end of the Gospel of John is that, you know, after the disciples have been out fishing all night, which is probably, you know, Peter just going back to something he remembers how to do. And, you know, he goes back to fishing and then they smell some fish and biscuits cooking on the shore after a night of catching no fish. And (laughs) hey, guys, you want something to eat? And it's Jesus. And Peter jumps out of the boat. He swims to the shore, and and Jesus serves them a meal, and Jesus restores Peter in such a loving and beautiful way. And this is where the change actually happens in Peter's life. See, up to this point, truth, even the truth of Christ has been external to him. It's been something that you try really hard to do. But now Peter has awakened to reality as it actually is. See, here's the thing about mystics and prophets, and I would even say poets and, and artists, and whether they're songwriters, or the, the, the reason that truth resonates with us wherever we find it is not that poets and prophets and artists are seeing some other realm. They're actually seeing reality as it is, but we're blinded to. See, Jesus wasn't, Seeing some other realm, he was actually living in reality as it actually is. But we're blind to it by our own egos, by our own issues. We're blind to it because we're living in a framework just like the people who welcomed Jesus in on Palm Sunday. We are fine welcoming Jesus as the Messiah as long as he'll be the Republican Messiah, as long as he will be the Democrat Messiah, as long as he'll be the Messiah that backs up all the things that we want the Messiah to do. We will welcome him in. Come on, Jesus, you be our Republican king, our American king. Getting quiet up in here. (laughs) But Jesus didn't come to fit into our box. (laughs) He didn't come to fit into our definition. He has redefined what Messiah is about. He's come to face a much bigger enemy than Caesar, and that's death itself. And Peter and all the other disciples, they have to they have to come to a realization that even, even though they spent three years with Jesus. They were still trying to fit Jesus into their framework, into their religious framework, into their political framework. I had lunch with a guy a few weeks back, a different guy. Uh, And he's real into figuring out, you know, end times prophecy and who's the Antichrist. And I said, look, dude, if I can tell you one word of wisdom, the people who had everything figured out about what God was going to look like when he came the first time, they missed him. So you may want to practice a little agnosticism in here. (laughs) Jesus is not, as C.S. Lewis put, a tame lion. He's not interested in fitting into the ideological, political, religious boxes that we want him to fit into. That is still coming from a place of willfulness. But what we see characterizes the ministry of Peter from the Sea of Galilee where Jesus reconciles him onward is not willfulness, it's willingness now. That's where the spiritual journey is going, folks. If you stay with this thing long enough, you're going to come to an end of your own will. And thank God for that. Thank God for that. Because really, 
the, the faith of Jesus that we see, it is never driven. It is never trying to squeeze others in. It's never threat. It's never intimidation. It's never coercion. It is willingness. Father, not my will, but your will be done. It is serving instead of power over. It is humility. It is mercy. It is compassion. That's willingness. And I think this Holy Week, as we move towards Good Friday, I think a good thing for us to all reflect on our own lives, how much of my own uh, life is characterized by willfulness, just the best that I can do, or trying to bend others to my will, or get others to, to, to be what I want them to be. What would it look like to let go of those things? See, every one of the disciples, not only did they have to face their own lack of willpower, but they had to face even letting go of their own conceptions of God and God's purposes. That's a good thing, folks. And my prayer is this week, as we go through Holy Week leading up to our Good Friday potluck, that we could each reflect on how much of my life am I just trying to to drive this thing and trying to make it happen and just trying to be a good person. How might God be inviting me to let go and to trust and to surrender? Why don't y'all stand? Lord God, I just pray this morning for every one of us as we remember you today, as we remember the story of your cross and your resurrection this most holy week of the Christian calendar. Lord, I pray that your light would illuminate our hearts, that you would wake us up, Lord, that we would move from slumber to alertness, that we would move from willfulness to willingness, Lord. Lord, we would move from grasping to letting go, Lord. We would move from dominating to serving, Lord. Lord, let our lives take the shape of your life, Lord. Lord, let every crack within our life be filled with your light. Come, Lord Jesus. Shine your light within. Illuminate our hearts. Make us more like you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it's time to go um, pick up some food. So uh, we're going to go pick up some bags, and we got some food for you on on the back porch. Grab you a barbecue sandwich. Go pick up some food for the food bank, and uh, thank you all. See you next Sunday, Easter.